Hey, we are glad that you are here. My name's Mike. Welcome. We are um, we're gathering on a Sunday night to, uh, to look at a 3,000-year-old love poem that deals with issues and raises concerns. Hello, skipping. We're skipping. Hello. Oh, my goodness. Right front row, center. Holy cow. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the face of godliness right there. Now, we are, we are heading down the home stretch. So what that means is tonight we're going to talk about marriage. Uh, next week, we're, we're going to talk... If you missed the Princess Bride reference, next week we're going to talk about sex. And it's going to be all sex all night is what we're going to talk about. Yep, and then single folks can go home and not do anything, and then the married folks can get there once a month, you know, in, and uh, it'll be glorious. And then what we're going to do is uh, um, we're going to have some guests in, and then we're going to do a big old healing service, and that will be, um, we're, we're, it's just, it's going to be a very important, I think, time in the life of our church, and the invitation will be uh, to just bring sexuality back under God's blessing. And so that will be in four weeks. And then maybe, if we can, we'll try to fit a Q&A in there somewhere. I don't know. Um, but I, I want to let you know, every, after every meeting that we have, there's a crew of people that gathers uh, up here and, and back over on this side. And we've been calling them our care team. And these are folks that are trained uh, to pray, but, uh, but not only to pray, to listen uh, some of these folks are lay counselors in the church. Some of these folks have stories that are, are you know, pretty amazing stories that out of their brokenness and into freedom. Uh, and I want, I want to introduce you tonight to a couple of them. So turn your eyes to the screen. I want you to meet the Dodgens. The first 20 years of our marriage, I was kind of hiding and isolated and uh, in 1995, uh, God impressed with me the need for me to tell the truth. I had been hiding uh, an addiction to pornography. Uh, at the time, it was a 30-year addiction to pornography. When Jim told me about his 30-year addiction, um, it was very hard. I, I was very despondent for a while. Um, I knew that God wanted me to respond well to him, but. I didn't know how to deal with it, Um, and as time went on, I realized that I was just as broken as him. As we were beginning to see our own brokenness, we began to see that there was many people around us with brokenness, and that seemed to be a mission for us. God began to open doors for us because we were telling the truth about our sin. My heart got bigger for people who were broken and and who were struggling with addictions, and, and the homeless often struggle with those, uh, maybe more than others. And that led into the ministry with the homeless. Our friends have uh, a shower trailer and a washer and dryer trailer, and it's been uh, about six months now that we bring a washer and dryer trailer and shower trailer to Fullerton and serve the homeless community in Fullerton. They want their clothes washed, and they want to take a shower. And the essence of the ministry is they also want relationship and friendship. Over the years, I have done a lot of work on my own sexual brokenness. And then I met 
uh, a woman that started a ministry in Los Angeles called Treasures, and I began to volunteer with them. I had the opportunity to start working with women coming out of the commercially sexually exploited industry, and I now work with women from all walks of life, prostitution, porn, we have traffic victims, and women working in exotic dance clubs. We go into the strip clubs once a month, and we pass out gifts, and we look for opportunities for conversations with the women. They get a card that says they are loved and have value and purpose, and when they go to our website, then they can check off whether they want to mentor, and that's where I come in. What's really amazing for me about her ministry to women coming out of the sex industry is that God, you know, redeemed my sin. He, yeah, I would have never dreamed that, you know, this, this really difficult sin that I had and struggled with through 30 years, he actually turns around and uses for his glory and, and, and gives us a ministry. I believe God has a mission for everyone. Yeah. Uh, it's sometimes in places where you least expect it. Mm. God took our brokenness and, and turned it into a mission. So we had filmed that originally for uh, a series that we'd done in our church called Missio, and um, we weren't quite sure that references to the adult entertainment industry and those sorts of things uh, were, were going to fly with some of our younger folks that come to our services. And so um, what we did is we just saved it, and uh, Jim and Roe have been here every single week, and they are here to pray and to bless. Would you guys just stand up? I want people to see that you're here and that you're real, and they are right here. Could you say hi to them? And yeah, you can, you can sit out. But, but these, these folks are folks uh, who, in just a little bit of their story, I mean, and, and that is, if you hear nothing else, hear this. There is not one of you too far away from God. There is not one of you too filthy or too fallen. There is not one of you that has sinned too much or fallen too far who cannot be touched by the grace of this Jesus. And their story is so compelling to me because out of the admission of brokenness came fruitful ministry and your struggle doesn't have to be your defining thing. God can actually use that to open up ministry far beyond anything you could ask or imagine. And there are evidence. But we have folks like them that are here. And please, do not leave tonight. If stuff is stirred up, we want to pray for you. We want to bless you. Um, but we also realize some of the issues that we're getting into are far too complex uh, just you know, to be handled on a 30-second Q&A. And so those kind of folks are here for you to be a blessing. And they're not here in judgment. They're not here in condemnation. They're here as folks who are a bit farther down the road who can understand completely the brokenness of the journey, okay? If you have a Bible, let's go to Song of Songs, chapter 3. We're going to a wedding tonight. And uh, we're, as you know, we've been going along, what we've been doing is we've been using some of the issues this poem raises to jump into other parts of the scriptures. We'll do that again. Song of Songs, chapter 3, a he, she, and a they uh, are in conversation. And, um, and we want to pick up the, uh, the story in Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 6. She says... 
Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with a sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night." King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made of silver. Its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple. Its interior, interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his what? The day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. This poem, as we have said, doesn't move in a linear fashion. It's not like, well, they're courting here, and then they, they meet, and they go on their first date, and then they're engaged. I mean, this is, this is the language of romance and poetry and passion, and, and at some points it seems like they're dating, and at some points they seem like they're married, and they argue, and they, and they make love, and they, it's just all of this yearning, kind of this big, beautiful package of romance and attraction. And that we find it in the Bible just, again, remains a surprise for so many that somehow this subject uh, would be beneath God's notice. But in fact, when we have an entire book dedicated to the idea that that what happens between uh, two lovers is something that is sacred, something that is holy, something that is powerful. And so we've looked at different snapshots of them. And, And this snapshot we get is of what Solomon looked like on the day of his wedding. King Solomon, ironically enough, had 300 wives and 700 concubines. Uh, so he's got a thousand women in his life. And if this is indeed the song of Solomon, the question is naturally asked, why in the world would God have a guy who's involved with a thousand women, write a poem celebrating the uniqueness of fidelity to one, right? And the answer, of course, is, well, who better? Jesus chooses the most random of people. So, hey, who are we going to have write the hymnal for the Old Testament, for Old Testament Israel? We're going to have a a king who uh, was a drunkard, an adulterer, and a murderer, and he'll be your worship leader. It'll be awesome. Or, um, or, or who's going to be the founder of Israel? We'll pick a guy named Jacob. And Jacob's a cheat, a manipulator, uh, and a liar. And, um, and we'll just choose him and rename him Israel, which means one who wrestles with God, and it'll be awesome. Um, who are we going to choose to like, be the ambassador and the messenger of the good news of Jesus to non-Jewish people, we'll take the dude who is so intently Jewish that he was persecuting Christians and murdering them because they were an offense to him, right? Paul is the guy who was out murdering Christians before he became one. So who better than Solomon, if he indeed wrote this, who better than Solomon, the dude who was so polluted with infidelity, to either have written this early in his life or late in his life saying... This is what it should have been like. This is what it should have been like. And so the image that we get is of King Solomon and all of his royal splendor coming on the day of his wedding to marry this girl. Now that raises the following question. And we've gotten it a lot. What exactly is a marriage, right? One of the first questions we had was, hey, um, (laughs) what is wrong exactly with being married in our hearts? 
right? Why do we need a piece of paper? Why do we need to do a ceremony? We know we love each other. Why? Like, what's, what, is a wedding, I mean, is it necessary? Why can't you just promise each other in private? Um, and, and there have been so many questions about that. We thought we'd take the opportunity of Solomon's wedding to kind of look at a theology of what marriage turns out to be. So with that, let's go to the book of Genesis. Per usual... I know, you're thinking this was Song of Songs, but it's actually Genesis over and over and over. So here's what I'm going to do. As always, you can text in your questions. We'll try to get to as many as possible. Secondly, I'm going to try to teach shorter tonight to leave more room for questions. Don't be, don't be so agreeable with that, all right? Because I think it's, I teach well. Um, Genesis chapter 2 she was nodding very vigorously. Like, yeah, what, why don't you just skip you part and we'll just go straight to the questions. I was reading into that, but I think that's what you were non-verbally communicating. Now, verse uh, 20 of Genesis chapter 2. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. The Hebrew there is better translated side. We looked at this last week. And then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. Now, in Hebrew, the phrase brought her to the man. The rabbis had a field day with this phrase. Because it is used in Jewish weddings. When the bride is presented to the groom, you could translate it, the bride is brought to the groom. And so what, and again, I don't know if this is what God intended, but the rabbis had a field day with this because the, the way it's phrased in Hebrew suggests that God was presenting the man the way a father would present a bride to a groom. God was presenting the woman to the man in the way a father would present the bride to a groom. And, 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 and I think there's something to that because immediately the man says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his what? Now, have we had any mention of wife up until this point? No, it's just been male and female. Genesis 1, he created the male and female. Genesis 2, he created the man, then he created the woman. Now all of a sudden we've got the word wife, which makes him a husband. So the idea is that the Bible opens with a marriage. That somewhere along the way, maybe it's at this moment when God brings her to the man. That's what the rabbis would argue. But regardless, now instead of male and female, now you have husband and wife. And notice this phrase. This is why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, the entire theology of marriage and sex is contained in this one verse. The man leaves his mother and his father. Now, this is absolutely, in the culture of the day, this was surprising because normally the woman would leave her family and join together with the man's family. But here, the man leaves his family, the woman leaves her family, and they create a new family. And you have to understand this. Part of the reason why some marriages struggle is because they really haven't left their mother and father. 
Can I get an amen? Right? And moms and dads, God bless them, will sometimes want to be at the center of the marriage of their children. Right? And the children, I mean, and we talked a bit about this last week. One of the foxes that you have to wrestle with is, is saying to your mom and dad and to her mom and dad that, you know, we're this thing now. And, and that's hard to negotiate sometimes. But the idea is your identity is no longer primarily defined by the mother's household or by the father's household. It is now defined by this new thing that has been created when a husband and a wife join together. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Now, the word united here is a strong word. It means glued together. It means bonded, cemented. It's the idea that that they are joined in such a powerful way that they are now spoken of as one, even though they're two. So they become one flesh. And the one flesh, the the idea here is that the sexual union of the man and the woman is symbolic of the union of their natures. So the way man and woman fit together physically is the way they fit together in every other way. And the best marriages, there's a sense of oneness. They begin to look like each other. They begin to sound like each other. They begin to think like each other. Right? There is a oneness to the best marriages that is beautiful. So what you have right in the beginning of the scripture is a wedding. In some way, shape, or form, the man and the woman become husband and wife. They're to leave their households, form a new thing that is cemented together and embodied by their one fleshness. Their one fleshness symbolizes the fact that they're no longer two, but one. Now, I know we all kind of know this, But this imagery becomes so central to the rest of the way the scriptures talk about marriage. Go, if you would, to the book of Exodus, chapter 6. Now, give me 10 minutes of painful background, and, and then we'll get to the New Testament where everyone's happy. All right, so... If you're new to the Bible, my assumption is there are some of you here who are pretty skeptical of all of this. And the fact that you're here, I think, is awesome. And, and even if you don't buy it, I think there's some wisdom here. Even if you don't buy the Jesus thing or you don't buy the Bible thing, the fact that you're here, I think, is wonderful. But there's wisdom in some of what we're saying. Because regardless of whether or not you buy the thing, the point we're going to make is a powerful, powerful point. And then, of course, leave it to Q&A to tease out all the implications. Exodus chapter 6. Now, what I want to show you is the book of the Bible that we're first introduced to the Ten Commandments. We have this view of God that God is a lawgiver. God is a mean God, at least in the Old Testament. God, all God is about is rules. And what I want to do is I want to show you that the way the Ten Commandments are given is the way Jewish wedding ceremonies were conducted. In other words, God marries his people in the Old Testament. And Jewish people would have understood this completely. So there are parallels between the way God speaks to his people and the way a Jewish ceremony, a wedding ceremony, uh, was performed during that time. So I want to draw your attention for 10 minutes, painful background, to several facets. Giddy up. 
Exodus 6, verse 6. Therefore, Moses, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. They were enslaved at this time. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. Now, the first step in a Jewish wedding ceremony was something called lakah. Say lakah. Lakah was where the groom would publicly declare to the bride, I take you as my bride. It had to be public. It was part of what kicked off the betrothal ceremony. And so when God says, I, take, I will take you as your own people, they will take you, the take, there is lakah. It means to marry. Hi. If you're tuning in online, it's 724. (laughs) Flip over to Exodus 19. We're in the Bible tonight, young man. We are just, just kidding. Go to Exodus 19. So the first step in a Jewish wedding ceremony is lakah. When God says, I will take you and I will redeem you, that is bridal language. I want you to see bridal language all over the place. Notice Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. The word possession is the word segula. The segula is one of the things that a a groom would say to a bride. Out of all the people, out of all the women on earth, I take you. Laka was the declaration to marry. A segula was the announcement that out of everybody, I choose you. It was an announcement of chosenness and treasuredness. Jump down if you would. To verse 10 of the same chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready on the third day because on that day the Lord will come down. Now, what brides would do the night before their marriage is that they would take a ritual bath called a mikvah. And the word here for wash is mikvah. In other words, what you have are these parallels between the way a wedding ceremony would take place in Jewish culture and the way God is giving the Ten Commandments. You understand this? The the view that has God as some sort of cosmic rule giver is completely off base. God is a cosmic lover. He is a pursuer. And so he paints his relationship with his people in marital terms. Right? If you want a couple of more. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain. A thick cloud was symbolic of God's presence. Even today in some Jewish weddings, they will have a Jewish prayer shawl. It's called a hoopah. Say hoopah. Under the hoopah is where you get married. It symbolizes God's presence. In the Jewish understanding of sexuality, when when a husband and a wife make love, God is present and pleased. It is a great gift of God. In contrast to some medieval theologians that said when two married people have sex, the Holy Spirit leaves the room. 
right? The Jewish view says, no, 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 no. God, this is a blessing fundamentally, and so God, every step of the way. How does a Jewish wedding start? It starts by, with the announcement, I will take you. You will be my treasured possession. The bride takes a mikvah, and so God has his people ritually bathe. There's a hoopah when God meets with his people, and so the Jewish people have a prayer shawl symbolizing God's presence over them. And then lastly, and most importantly, even if I've lost you, this is the part where it gets so good. The most important part of a Jewish wedding was something called ketubah. Say ketubah. Ketubah was the written agreement that stipulated the expectations and responsibilities of the bride and the groom. It was written in Hebrew. It was usually posted on the wall of the home of the new couple. And it was literally... The, the husband promised, biblically, there were three things a husband uh, owed a wife. Food, shelter, and conjugal rights. So it's funny, they made the man promise to have sex with the woman, which I think is awesome, and we should have that now in more weddings. <laughs> Young lady was up here clapping. This section something. The ketubah was the most important part because it demonstrated that what was happening was something called a covenant. Marriage in the Bible is a covenant. And so God, when God makes a covenant with his people, he uses marital imagery to do it. And so he uses lakah and segula and mikvah and hupah. And now there's this thing called ketubah. Ketubah was the written agreement that governed the expectations and the responsibilities of both parties. So, what's the ketubah for Israel? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then he goes on for the Ten Commandments. That's ketubah language. You shall have no other lovers, in other words. You're married to me. Now, whether or not you understood all of this or whether or not I explained it well, the thing I want you to see is the part of the Bible we most look at and think is, well, that's just God giving rules, is actually couched in language that's bride and groom language. The Bible begins with a wedding. The Bible ends with a wedding. And when God ceremonially adopts his people to be his treasured people. He uses marital language to do it. That's the point. Now, the imagery is all over the Old Testament. In Jeremiah, go ahead and fire up the iPad. The imagery is all over the Old Testament. During the ring of, of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up under every high hill and under every spreading tree and committed adultery there. Now, this is God speaking of Israel. So he compares the worship of other gods to committing adultery in a marriage. Do you see this? I thought after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adultery. Now, do you see, do you see the image? God was married to his people, and when his people were unfaithful to him, he viewed it, he called it, he paralleled it to adultery. 
Next. The book of Hosea, if you ever want to read a very interesting book, go to Hosea, where God calls a prophet to marry a prostitute and be faithful to her even though she's unfaithful because it's a picture of God's faithfulness to unfaithful Israel. It's really kind of weird. Therefore, but right in the middle of that book, therefore, I, he's speaking of Israel, I am going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. I will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. What kind of relationship does God want with his people? A love relationship. And so he uses marriage. See, the one big point you got to see is that the predominant picture of God's relationship to his people is marriage. That's the picture over and over and over. And if you're thinking, okay, I got it. Do we have to keep going? Yes. (laughs) Isaiah 61. God has clothed me with garments of salvation, arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adores his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. In other words, what God has done for Israel is what a groom does for a bride. Even Jesus uses this language. Whoa, Ezekiel! We don't want Ezekiel. Even Jesus uses this language. In John chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My, in my father's house, excuse me, I was using the different translation. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may be where I am. Now, that is language straight from a betrothal ceremony. What a young Jewish boy would say to a young Jewish girl once the betrothal ceremony was completed is I go to prepare a place for you. And he would literally go to his father's house and add a room, the insula. He would take a year, year and a half to prepare a room. And then he would come and get his bride whenever the father of the groom said it was okay and take her back there. So when Jesus says, hey, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house, there are many rooms, that's just bridal language. And then you get into Revelation, big scary book of Revelation, And this is how the whole story ends. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So, the Bible begins with a marriage, the Bible ends, excuse me, the Bible begins with a marriage, the Bible ends with a marriage. Marriage imagery is all throughout the thing. Go to the book of Ephesians. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, a passage we've looked at a couple of times. Now, are you out there so far? Okay. We look at marriage and we see piece of paper. We look at marriage and we see, I got to spend 30 grand, the chicken dance and wedding pictures. (laughs) Right? In the Bible, the reason marriage is used as a picture of God's relationship to his people is because marriage is a covenant. It's not an agreement between two individuals seeking self-fulfillment. A covenant in the Bible is a mutual agreement of equals binding themselves to each other with promises of fidelity and the pledge of duties and obligations to each other. That's what a covenant is. 
And so the only thing under the sun, in Solomon's phrase, that God looks at and says, this is a picture of how I want to relate to my people is the idea of marriage. This is why we think it's sacred. It's not because, well, you know, the Puritans were right. It's because rather, it is a picture of something bigger than two people just trying to get along. It's a picture of something bigger than two people just trying to take irreconcilable differences and somehow make it work. It's bigger than a piece of paper. Paul says this, verse 21, Ephesians 5, submit one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, right? And you remember the relationship of these two verses. Every disciple everywhere should make it a regular practice to seek the good of other people before their own. Comma, wives, do this to your husbands. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And as we've joked, we wish the sentence stopped right there. Right? Nobody likes, everyone, all the dudes like the job description, excuse me, all the dudes like the title of head, but nobody likes the job description. Because... For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, of which he is Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so the wives should also submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Why? Because they're one flesh, right? He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. And then Paul quotes Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ in the church. What? What? We were just talking about husbands and wives here. Right? Husbands ought to love their wives. And then he says, Genesis 2, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, two will become one flesh. This is a mystery. Yes, it is. But I'm actually talking about Jesus and his church. You're right, it's a mystery, because I don't even understand what you're saying right now. But what's Paul echoing? What's Paul actually saying here? He's saying the same thing that all the Old Testament prophets said, and the same thing that Exodus says, and the same thing that we saw in Genesis. That the picture of marriage is a picture of the way God wants to relate to his people. Brothers and sisters, if you hear anything, please hear this. The point of marriage in the Bible is never marriage. That's why all of these great marriage enrichment stuff, I mean, that's great. Improve your communication skills. Get better at conflict. Fight the foxes. Absolutely. But that's still presupposing that the end goal of a marriage is just having better communication skills. When actually, the point of a marriage is that a husband would give of himself with such affection and devotion 
And a wife would give of herself with such affection and devotion that they would become a living, breathing picture of the gospel of Jesus. Two people who choose each other over and over and over again, even though they know everything about the other one. Right? That's what the point of marriage turns out to be. Now, this makes zero sense to an American culture that says the purpose of marriage is self-fulfillment. Right? We say, and you've got to understand this, we now look at marriage as just another consumer item. As long as it makes me happy, as long as it meets my needs, as long as we're compatible, as long as it's good, I'm in. But study after study says anywhere between four to seven years after you get married, you will become restless because the adrenaline of romance will wear off. And unless you got married and made a covenant, there's not a lot to keep you together once you're no longer happy. Because you will go through a season, every married couple will tell you, you go through seasons in marriage where it's tough. It's work. And so on the one hand, if marriage is just a consumer item, well, why wouldn't people just get out? And I guarantee you that here's what the enemy loves to do. Between that four to seven year window, that person you dated in high school or college, you some magically discover them on Facebook or something. You go to your first high school reunion. I mean, affairs are so rampant during that season of marriage. Why? Because I got married to meet my needs. This person isn't meeting my needs. Ergo, I must have married the wrong person. But the scripture is teaching on marriage, if you come to believe it, will utterly transform what it is that you do when you say, I do. I mean, I've stood at marriages where this is their second or third marriage, and they're sitting there promising in sickness and in health for better and worse, for richer and poorer. And you're kind of going, really? You want to you say that again? Now sometimes, and I think the Bible does allow for divorce in some cases. I, I do. But that's way fewer than what the American church practices. And so the idea is that what a marriage turns out to be is a living, breathing picture of the gospel of Jesus. A, a man would love his wife and give himself up for her. A woman would receive that love and reciprocate it. That that turns out to be one of the best witnesses to the truth of the gospel anywhere. So that's what's at stake, men and women. But you and I, we're raised in a culture that just says, nope, you, tr you test drive this one, 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 until you find one that you think there's no better deal out there. You say yes, and what you're saying yes to is, hey, as long as you make me happy, as long as we get along, as long as there's sexual chemistry, we're in. I mean, I wish there was truth in marriage vows. You know what I'm saying? I mean, because really, in my immaturity, what am I saying on the day of my wedding? Well, I really hope that we can have sex a whole bunch, and that you will cook for me, and that you will clean up, and that you will take care of the kids, and that you won't force me to change, and that you won't argue with me, and that you'll let me be head of the house, right? 
Oh, there's silence on that one. I mean, there, there's just a sense, and I'm beating this up, and I'm sorry, but, the, but it's so strong in our world, the idea that marriage is an arrangement for personal fulfillment, and it's not part of the greater mission of being a disciple and witness to this Jesus. It just doesn't even make sense to us. It just sounds so awful. Who would want to do that? So an understanding of marriage is actually based on an understanding of the grace of Jesus that says there is no better thing than what he is and what he does. And once you've given your life to him, what he will invite you into is an arrangement where you begin to embody the way he loves you with somebody who lives with you in such close proximity, you get to practice loving somebody who isn't worth your love all the time. There was a study done 2002, oh, I find this so good. Why men don't commit? That was the study. There were two key factors, right? Because here was the answer that men gave in the study. Men gave the answer that they were afraid to commit until they found their soulmate. And, And so, and here's how they define soulmate. Are you ready? Now look at me. You guys are getting all squirrely over here. Focus. Okay, we can talk about how far is too far later, or we can talk about masturbation or something to kind of keep your interest, but... <sighs> oh, come on, where are you going? What? I would just get... What? What? White men won't commit, and you're walking out at that point. (sighs) It better be a trip to the restroom, boys. It better be. So, (laughs) if you're online, it's uh, 745. So, so the study was, hey, why don't men commit? Men, com- men said they didn't commit because they were waiting to find their soulmate. Now, what's interesting is how they define their soulmate, all right? Two factors in being a soulmate, according to these dudes. Factor number one was sexual chemistry, right? That, that, that there was a sense of urgency and tension and trying to entice and seduce the other one. That was, and that that stayed there for a long time. That was part of soulmateness. But the thing that was more important and this one is awesome, is a factor called compatibility. And here's how the men define compatibility. A willingness to take them as they are and not change them. Finding someone who will fit into their lifestyle. Someone who will support their goals and pursuits of success. Single folks, have I got great news for you. No such person exists. Can I get an amen? See, there is this romantic fiction propagated by Hollywood that says 
There is somebody out there who will complete you. Somebody out there who won't demand of you. Somebody out there who won't offend you or anger you. And if you just hold out enough to find him or her, marriage will turn out to be really easy. The problem is, that is not biblical. There are arranged marriages in the Bible, and in a couple instances, God actually picked out a spouse for somebody, but that in no way, shape, or form is a prescriptive passage. That is a descriptive passage. Right? That's the exception rather than the rule. What is called for, brothers and sisters, is wisdom, not magic. Okay? There's no surefire formula. You're going to marry a sinner. And I know you know it, but what makes a covenant different than a contract is a covenant says, even when you're at your worst, I will never leave you or forsake you. What marriage does is it puts you in proximity with another human being to the place where all of your flaws and weaknesses and sins are on full view. And it doesn't matter who you marry. That is just what marriage does. Living in 24-7 proximity to somebody, they'll see your selfishness, they'll see your pettiness, they'll see your insecurity, they'll see your gossip, they'll see your lust, they'll see it all. And healthy marriages live in that, fight through that, and love each other through that. Because right next, what marriage does is it harnesses two things, the power of truth and the power of love. The power of truth is that you can't hide when you're married. Marriage doesn't cause weakness, it just exposes it. And if you choose well and stay faithful, marriage embodies the power of love. And I believe one of the reasons why God, why God wired it so that opposites attract is so that your issues will be provoked by your spouse to the place where you'll, they'll either crush you or heal you. So I think God arranges it so that the person that you end up choosing provokes the issues you need to most work on. And I've only been married 13 years. There are some of you who've been married 50, 60 years. And you could speak to this better than I could. Here's just what I know. On the one hand, and we said this last week, on the one hand, we don't want to overly glamorize marriage. Single folks, quit defining yourself as single. Don't define yourself by what you lack. Define yourself by what you are and what you're called to. And, and, and married folks, let's quit trying to set them up and... Let's just include them as a normal, healthy part of the body. You know what I'm saying? They're fine. They're fine. Unless you want set up, and then we'll be glad to help. So on the one hand, we don't want to overly romanticize marriage. Because the ironic thing, if you view that there's a soulmate out there, that actually keeps you from having a good marriage. Because if you think this is the one, and then that one turns out to be sinful, the natural inclination of your heart's going to be, I married the wrong one. And I can't tell you how many dudes, godly dudes, have looked me in the eye and justified their adultery by saying, well, I finally met my soulmate. And you just go, dude, no. But in the enthrallment and the adrenaline of lust and the newness of that seduction, nothing to say. I mean, I had a guy abandon his wife and three kids by saying, well, once saved, always saved. 
okay, good luck with that. So men and women, we just, on the one hand, we don't want to say marriage is the solution to your problems. But on the other hand, it's unbelievably worth it if you see it as a covenant and not an arrangement for your own happiness, right? See, God has purposes far beyond your happiness. And here's the weird thing. So I'm a, I'm a pretty selfish dude. I hate to admit that. But I can be, I can be the kind of guy that with my wife, I'm, I'm thinking of how much can I get instead of how much can I give. And I know I'm the only person in this room like that. But there was a point in our marriage, I remember we were arguing about something, and, and here's what I said, I hate this. I can't break up with you, I can't divorce you, I can't win this argument. There's nothing I can do. I can't win. Right, that was a high point in my Jesus journey, for sure. And she said, yeah. Just like that. And what did it force us to do? It actually forced us to get creative and for me to die to self. The call on husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, it's an impossible thing apart from Jesus. And here's the ironic thing, get this. When you actually begin to do that in marriage, it becomes more fulfilling than you could possibly imagine. If you're in it just for you, it's going to disappoint you and frustrate you. But if you taste just a little bit, and I'm still on the journey, if you taste just a little bit of what it actually is to give yourself fully to another person, then all the fulfillment in the world comes your way. That's the irony. If you go into it claiming fulfillment, you'll miss it. But if you go into it to serve the other, you'll find it. It seems like Jesus said something very similar about discipleship with him. So, I've rambled enough. I don't know if I've lost you. I don't know why they walked out. I'm totally (laughs) worried. So let's look at some questions. And then we're going to do some praying. With fear and trembling. I've been struggling with insecurity since I can remember. I often compare myself to others and wonder if I will ever measure up. My husband struggles with pornography and I can't help but think I'm not beautiful enough for him. How should I communicate these feelings to him or should I just try and ignore it? First, let's talk about the pornography thing. Don't ignore that. Please do not ignore that. There are many in our body who find themselves, and and it's usually women finding men, although these days the number of women involved in pornography is, is approaching, staggering as well. But please understand, as we've talked about, if you've been with us, that pornography habit will damage, if it hasn't already, thoroughly your relationship. Because pornography, is not, it not only diminishes the person you're looking at, it diminishes the looker. It diminishes the participant. And it robs them, if you sit in it long enough, it robs them of the ability to actually experience the love and intimacy that we're talking about. The most devastating thing, when I had to confess to my wife for the first time, she knew I struggled with pornography, right? But what's that mean? So the first time in our marriage when I actually had to go to her and say, hey, I blew it. I, last night I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at. 
And her first comment was, am I not beautiful enough? Now, if you've seen my wife, you know the answer to that is, am I not beautiful enough? <laughs> What's the answer to that? She is beautiful. Yeah, I mean, that, but I couldn't figure out the double, am I not enough? And uh, Yes? No? I don't know. You're beautiful enough is what I'm trying to say. Oh, I'm tired. I'm sorry. But you know, that was devastating because I couldn't make her understand it had nothing to do with her and had everything to do with me and how I'd habituated myself to view women. And so, young lady, I am so sorry that this adds to the insecurities. We've talked a bit, if you've been with us, we've talked a bit about where those insecurities come from. But you cannot remain silent and you cannot ignore. And if your husband isn't willing to get help or to wrestle with this, then there is a long, hard road ahead of you. I wish I could make it better. The best thing, if he's unresponsive, is to pray. And I know that sounds cheap, but it's not. I tell you, there is so much power in the broken-hearted prayers of spouses in an unfulfilling marriage. And that doesn't mean that it'll all turn out perfect, but it means that you're invited to embody the love and sacrifice of Jesus. And I hate that for you. I'm so sorry. But the issue isn't you. The issue's him. And that's why you can't remain silent about it. Next question. If marriage is, a primary, is primarily a picture of the gospel of God, how much should attraction play in a role in selecting a partner? Fantastic question. I hope we've already answered this by saying it should play utterly a role. Absolutely. Song of Songs, 1-1, one, one, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Listen, do not date somebody four years in and say, man, I'm just not attracted. I mean, that, that, that's not more holy, okay? All right? I'm just saying balance out the hotness with a good name or majestic character because the hotness and the intensity of the infatuation will fade and you're left with a name and you're left with character. And so, listen, please choose somebody that you're attracted to because if you want to live out your vows, this is the body that you will look at the rest of your life, the only one. And this is the person you will kiss the rest of your life, the only one. That's what you're saying. Seriously, I restrict my freedom to bind myself to you forever. That's what you're saying. And so part of, I think you better be attracted in those instances. Now, is that the only thing? No, but let's not pretend it's not there. So high school kids, When you ask, hey, what are you looking for in a husband or wife? You don't have to list like nine things that are the fruit of the Spirit and then say, oh, it'd be nice if they were cute. You can lead with cute and be okay with that, all right? All right, so just, yes, I, I hope she's hot. And I hope he's a stud. That is totally fine. But the issue, as always, is that can blind you. And in the, in the, in the intensity of the romantic moment, you can be blinded to the fact uh, that there are really ugly things inside beautiful people. Next question. 
I've had multiple sexual partners. Is there still hope of being sexually one with my wife someday? Absolutely there is. But understand what you've done. You've become one flesh many times. So you've bonded and you've ripped and you've bonded and you've ripped and you've bonded and you've ripped. And what's happening there, even though it feels great in the moment, and no one's going to argue it doesn't feel great, but what you're actually doing is shrinking your soul's capacity to experience the fullness of all that God has for you. So my goal for you wouldn't be out of shame or guilt to say, okay, I'm just going to be pure now. My goal for you is that you would actually hunger for purity because there is a great gift that is at the end of it. Okay, my, uh, and, and my sweet, sweet girl, um, she had a really traumatic experience early in her life that made her feel worthless and like damaged goods. That's her story to tell. And she, because she felt like she was damaged goods, she just felt like she could just do anything and find love and validation from guys the way they wanted to give it, and that was sexually. This was before she became a follower of Jesus. And she wondered that too. And I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that yes, absolutely, but repent, repent. It's not worth it. It's in the moment, oh, it's awesome. I totally get that. But it's not worth it. You will regret it, I promise. Next. As an abuse survivor, I struggle with the image of God as husband. Oh, I'm so sorry. How can I trust him with my future sex life when all I've experienced is violation. I, I've been around people who have the same struggle when they view God as Father, right? When Jesus talks about God as Father, and there have been people who've been abused and molested by their Father. A couple of thoughts. First of all, look at me. I am so, so sorry. You did not deserve this. You did nothing to deserve this. I don't even have to know you to know you did nothing to deserve this. This is demonic. This is evil. I am so sorry. Secondly, all I know to tell you is to marinate in the four Gospels and to look at how Jesus treats women and see if that doesn't totally revolutionize the way you think of God as husband. He, what he does is so revolutionary for his day. The way he elevated women, treated them respectfully, called them like he called everybody to be his disciples. But in those days, he didn't have women disciples. And yet Jesus was surrounded by them. When he came across those who'd had sexual misadventures, a woman who'd been divorced five times previously. In English, it says she had five husbands, and it makes it sound like she's the issue. In that culture, women couldn't initiate divorce. So she'd been divorced by five different guys. And Jesus looks at her and just simply says, I have something that you can't find in any of those relationships. And the last thing I would say is would you let us pray over you very specifically and very powerfully that God would break the yoke of those false images? Because it totally makes sense that you'd have them. Don't feel bad that you have those images. Totally makes sense. But it's a spiritual thing. You're held in bondage to this. 
And we want to go to war over that. Next, holy cow. You said nobody is too dirty for God. That may be true, but after multiple abortions, how does a woman forgive herself? First of all, when we say that nobody is too dirty for God, it's not a statement about you. It's a statement about how big his sacrifice is. In other words, look at me. You have, no, you don't need anyone to tell you that you're broken. You don't need anyone to tell you that you've screwed up. You know that and you live in that. What you need somebody to tell you is that the greatness and furiousness of the love of God displayed in Jesus is such that you simply cannot outrun it. How do I know? Well, the measure of worth of something is always compared to the price you pay for it. And in the biblical story, the price God paid was his own son. And so the picture is you are of infinite worth. You still bear his image. You've totally sinned. But guess what? There is not one single person among us who could stand up and look at God and say, yeah, I'm good. See, I'll say my wife wasn't a virgin and I was a technical one, but was her sexual sin greater than mine? See, I think from God's perspective, not so much. Now, there are different earthly consequences, utterly and absolutely, but we play the rank your sins game. And we think that somehow multiple abortions is at the bottom of the scale. And I'm just simply saying, I so grieve that you live in a world where that was necessary, where you felt like it was necessary, where you were so whatever, afraid or whatever, that this was the only way out for you. Please hear me. If any of you gets pregnant and you are courageous enough to keep your child to term, my wife and I will adopt it from you, okay? You don't have to do that. If you get pregnant, you're not married, you don't want the child, we'll take it. We'll take it. Because the regret that comes from making that decision is great. But it is not insurmountable. How do I know that God can forgive you? <laughs> I just look at the people he forgives. I mean, you look at the screw-ups and the misfits and the adultery and the murder. You look at the lies and the cheaters and you look at me. And you realize that invitation's open to all. I, I wish I could have such power in my words, all your defenses would go down, but you are not damaged goods. Come out of that. You don't have to live like that anymore. You can be repaired and made whole. But I beg you, if you find yourself sexually active and you find yourself pregnant, you're not alone. We won't shame you. We won't guilt you. We won't turn you away. We want to be a community where you're welcome. And for nine months, you'll have to live very publicly. I understand that. But we won't run from you. Because we want to be just a tiny bit of evidence that God actually feels that way. Man, I feel so inadequate for this.
I mean, because at the end of the day, the amount of brokenness sitting in this room is so immense. I got nothing. I got nothing. All I know is the best news in the history of the planet is the God who made you seeks to rescue you. And it has nothing to do with your worthiness. It has everything to do with your humble willingness to be rescued. We're not looking to make a religious people here. We're looking for people who are humble enough to come to the end of themselves and say, help. And Jesus just demonstrates a willingness to touch and to clean up anybody who calls upon his name. Next slide. If marriage is an image of God, how does homosexual marriage fit into that? That's the very natural question, huh? Now, I'm going to say some things that some of you are going to disagree with. Shocking. (laughs) What I hope is that you've been paying attention this whole time. The worst thing you can do when you talk about homosexuality is pull out the verses and just have a discussion in isolation of the big story. So we've been trying to talk about the big story. Now, there are some who teach uh, that marriage in the Bible, because there is so, like, here's here's the argument. The argument against me is, well, okay, Mike, sure. Bible says one man, one woman, one lifetime, clearly heterosexual, but what about all the incest, and what about the polygamy, and what about, you know, all of the stuff the Bible records? And I've had, I've had friends who are gay confront me with this stuff and say, dude, come on, really? The Bi- look at all, the Bi- even the Bible folks couldn't live up to their own book. And the answer, of course, is that there's a difference between what the Bible records and what the Bible approves of. And I hope just that it's obvious. And I've studied the other sides of all of these arguments. I really have. And and I do think it's obvious that God's intention was male-female covenant. Now listen to me. I think the Christian community has lost the moral right to ask the culture to live by Christianity when they're not Christian. The divorce rates that exist in our I mean, we can't do marriage well, and we want to just shake our fist. So when people say, hey, are you okay with gay marriage? Well, it depends what you mean by okay. We live in a democracy, and if that is the law of the land, okay. I'm not into asking non-Christian people to live as Christians. I'm asking Christian people to live as Christians. Okay, now hold on. That means that our house needs to get in order ourselves. So the greatest threat to marriage, and some of you will disagree and be angry with me, and that is fine. The greatest threat to marriage is the church's lame embodiment of it. It's not any external factor. I tell you that. The culture has gotten more secular because the church has, not vice versa. So when people say, hey, what do you think of gay marriage? I think the state has the right to define marriage however it wants to. I will vote my conscience, absolutely. I will abide by whatever the state decides. Oh, I can hear the rumbling. (laughs) But I will ask that we have the religious freedom to define marriage according to the scriptures. Okay? But do I think in a just society 
I think the purpose of government, at least in its democratic form, is to make sure that the rights of all of its citizens are insured. So, okay, if you want to define civil unions and make sure the gay community has rights, I'm not, oh, great. See, I think we lose something when we become issue people and not gospel people. And I think we've done too much protesting and not enough loving. And I know some of you will think that's a cop-out, and I tell you, that is not true. You tell me how Jesus of Nazareth would deal with this issue, and he would not be marching around shouting, God hates fags. I promise you that. Right? I mean, he loved the marginalized. And so, doggone it, if we're not willing to do that, we forsake the right to call down condemnation on brothers and sisters unless we are willing to love them in the midst of the culture they find themselves in. Now, I know I'm not saying this well, and I certainly wasn't prepared to talk about this. I should have been. And some of you are going to disagree. You're, we're, we're all looking for, well, is he going to cop out? Is he da-da-da? You know what? I, I just know this. Our double standard on this issue has to go. It is not the worst sin ever. Is it a sin? The Bible says, yes, it is. I've listened to the best attempts to explain it away, but from the beginning to the end of the book, all sex outside of marriage is deemed as out of bounds. So my point to those people that try to get the scriptures to say that it's okay, is just, well, just get rid of the scriptures then. You know, I mean, why twist the thing? Just get rid of it and say it's an irrelevant, dumb book. Right? But look at me. Some of you are here and you have same-sex attractions. And I would say to you exactly what we said to the gal who said, I've had multiple abortions. You are welcome here. We are every single one of us in process. And the invitation of Jesus to every single one of us is to learn to find our identity in him. So whether you define yourself as a certain orientation, as a certain political group, as a certain socioeconomic status, we're all summoned to find ourselves in Christ and to see where that leads us. Now, we're going to spend more time on this next week, but please hear me. If, if you're part of the gay community, I am so sorry that we've done such a poor job. I am so sorry that a lot of us have not embodied the grace and truth of Jesus. I am so sorry that in the name of Jesus, we have driven many people into hiding and away from his church. Some of you have written questions. Some of you have shared stories and you just said, I'm gay and I'm terrified of letting people know because I'll be rejected. Well, same promise. We won't run away. We're not going to run away from you. Ah, I wish I could do better, you guys. Next. How can I be a light to my porn addict, player father? Ah, oh, I know more than he thinks I know. Man, that is true, dads, of all of our kids. The best I can be is to love him ardently through it all. Is there any other way for me to minister to him? Ah. <sighs> I love your heart towards your father. And loving him ardently is absolutely beautiful. I love that. And 
I don't know that you can control him, change him, but I would write, my personal opinion, I would write him a letter that, say, that says, hey, Dad, here's what I know. Here's what I suspect. And I want you to know, if any of this is true, that I love you regardless. And I pray that God would redeem you out of this to be the man I know that you can be. And you hand it to him, and you don't bring it up. And I have yet to come across a dad who won't take something like that and be a bit wrecked by it. And then, love him. Pray for him. Don't give up on him. Men and women, so many of the issues we talk about are symptoms and not roots. Do you understand this? Our sexual brokenness, that's symptom stuff. Root issues, I feel unloved, I feel unworthy, I feel alone. That's the stuff Jesus starts with, and then he works his way to the symptoms. Next. I am married, yet we have been separated for six plus years. My spouse is presently living in another relationship. Should I wait? Is this a season? Should I remain in this relationship? I'm single. My spouse isn't. What now? I'm so sorry. And I can't answer that from here. I'd have to sit and talk. And I'd want to know the story. Are there cases, biblically, where you are permitted to divorce? I think there are. But I think those are fewer than the American church thinks. And this may be one of them. I don't know. I am sorry that your faithfulness has not been rewarded. I'm sorry that he has betrayed the vows and that you have not. I don't know what counsel to give you. I would assume that over the course of six years, you have been ardently praying for God's direction in this. And I would simply say, gather a couple of people around you who know the scriptures and know your story and see. It could be that God would call you to wait. It could be that God would call you to not. I don't know. I don't know. I'm so unbelievably sorry you're living in that situation. And I know a talk like this can just make you feel hopeless. I get that. And I think there are times God will call you to stay in a loveless marriage. I do. I don't know if this is one of them or not. I'd have to know more. I'm sorry. Next. If you're in a new relationship, when, when should you tell your boyfriend, girlfriend you are not a virgin? Great question. I wouldn't lead with that. <laughs> um, I, I went out on a date once in college uh, with, with, I was kind of a pseudo-Christian. She was a pseudo-Christian. And she said, um, hey, I need to confess that I kind of struggle with the physical area in relationships. <laughs> Me too. I mean, yeah. now I'm not saying that's what you're saying. I'm just simply saying that part of the way sometimes Christian daters overcompensate for not having physical intimacy is they share their life story in the first date. They're up until four in the morning for three weeks straight. They cut off themselves from their family and friends and they, they break up like six months later and they just feel emotionally raw and overexposed. 
And so I would say at some point, there will come a time if the relationship, you realize the relationship has the potential to go to long term, that you share that. But that's not something I think you lead with. It's not something I wouldn't, uh, I don't think it defines you if you're in Christ. I don't think it defines you if you're living a repentant, pure lifestyle. Um, and I think it's something that if shared too soon, could set you up for some bad things. If it's shared too late, it could set you up for some bad things too. Because I've had guys email before and is, email me and say, well, I'm a virgin, she's not. Ah, it just kills me. How do I deal with this? And that's a whole different conversation. So I think you'll know if the, if the relationship has potential to go long-term, and by long-term I mean like towards marriage, then yeah, have that conversation for sure. But I just, if you're casually dating, I'm not sure I'd share that right away. <sighs> I, I mean, literally, I, you just, you don't even know how lame I feel. I hope there's any wisdom in any of this. I want to totally redo my question on gay marriage. You know, I'm sitting here going, oh, I should have said this and I screwed this up and da 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 da. Ah. Oh, well, thank you. I just feel horrible. Oh, that's mercy, but I'll take it. I'll take mercy. All right. I wasn't fishing for it, but I'll take it. But I, but I want you to know how hard it is. Because listen, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, doesn't this sound just like craziness? Doesn't it? I mean, why in the world? Like our culture says that sexual expression is the means to self-fulfillment. And anything that would keep you from sexual expression is bad. What we're saying is just the reverse. There, there, there is something bigger that governs you than your desires. So, I mean, I had a guy, I had a guy show up who, here's what he said. He said, uh, and I tell you what, man, I have so many good uh, friends who are wrestling through um, the, the, either the homosexuality issue or the lesbian issue or the, the whole thing. And I had, a, I had a, a guy come up and say, okay, so I'm 33. I, I was engaged to a woman, but now I'm attracted to a guy and I want to be with him. Do you think that's okay? And so I, I say, um, okay, well, tell me about that. And he says, but, you know, these feelings are so real. Man, they used to, like, not everyone chooses to be gay, but I'm choosing to be gay. I mean, these feelings are so real towards this guy. And he just keeps saying that over and over. The feelings are real. The feelings are real. The feelings are real. And I said, okay, well, since you've been so honest with me, I got to be honest with you. I'm married. I have three kids, but there's a woman in our church that I'm totally attracted to. And I have uh, been slowly falling in love with her. And um, I'm thinking about leaving my, my wife and kids to be with her. I think she's the one. He looks at me and he says, are you serious? I said, well, yeah. Why? Why would you do that? You're a pastor. Why would you leave your family? I said, well, the feelings are so real. <laughs> and, and, and then he realized what I'd just done to him. And the conversation was over quickly. But, but the point was, the point was that A, 
of course the feelings are real. And B, sometimes the last things you should trust are your feelings for crying out loud. There are bigger things than your feelings in the moment. And one of the things old people know, look at the old people. They'll tell you. They will tell you that feelings change. They will tell you that there is something bigger that governs them. And they will tell you, listen to me, they will, they will tell you that if you do it right, the superficial love and infatuation that accompanies dating will be replaced down the road with something so beautiful, stable, and gospel-like that I wouldn't go back to the butterflies, you know? And that's what you're holding out for. Because the feelings, man, they'll be all over the place. And they turn out to be more about you than about the other person. Because so much of dating is actually loving yourself through the other person, right? I mean, if we're honest. And what marriage turns out to be <laughs> is loving the other person in spite of you and your selfishness and your sinfulness. Next, a couple more. See, are you happy? More Q&A, less. <laughs> My boyfriend is not Christian, and I know the Bible says when you get married, you should be equally yoked. But the Bible also says everything happens for a reason, and God won't give you anything you can't handle. Should I break up with him because he does not want to have a relationship with God? Okay. Great question. Thank you for asking it. Let me... I. I let me just say a couple of things. Number one, the two things you talk about, everything happens for a reason. Um, I don't know how far to take that. I do think God can redeem anything, but not everything happens for a reason. And so what I mean by that is, oh, I find myself in a bank, in a vault full of money, And I know you're not saying that, but I mean, you, can, you see how you can abuse that line of thinking? And, and I just go, well, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Listen, marriage is hard enough. You have no idea how hard it is. And if you don't agree, I mean, if Jesus is the most important thing in your life, to be one with someone who isn't, who doesn't think that, I just don't know how that could be a legitimate option for you. And it's not because they're a bad person. It's because you, if you, now you may just be like, Jesus is awesome, but you know, so are lots of other things. And th this is too important for me to let go of. Okay. But if you're serious about this Jesus, I mean, Jesus will say things like, man, if your mother and father is more important than me, you're not worthy of me. In other words, if a relationship is more important than following him, well, then you're not following him anymore. You're following you. And so I would just simply say, listen, the issue isn't whether or not you should marry a non-Christian. The issue is, how serious are you about Jesus? And that will answer the other question. And I don't mean to be all preachy. I just mean to say, at the end of the day, 
to be one, to share your entire life with somebody and not have that in common. I just don't know why you'd want to. No, I've seen missionary dating work in some rare instances. I have. I have. But the more common scenario is that the person who's the believer grows cold because the relationship becomes more important to them than um, they're following Jesus. And, uh, and so I would caution you, big time, one more, and then just come yell at me. Is it biblical for my parents to get a divorce if my dad recently identified himself as bisexual? Well, the Bible doesn't address that specific issue, I'm afraid to say. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, first, oh, moms and dads, can, can you feel the damage we do? I mean, do you understand? Like when my parents divorced, I was nine. And I knew they loved me, and I knew I wasn't at fault, and I sp- spent half the week with one and half the week with the other. But do you know how many, how much pain that's caused me? I mean, I'm just now beginning to see it all. And so I I caution us against divorcing quickly or easily. Is your dad a, a follower of Jesus first? Because if he's not, then is it biblical isn't going to matter. I mean, that's where I think you can quote the Bible to non-Christian world and they're going to say, well, (laughs) who cares, right? So the big deal is, is this somebody who claims to be a believer? If this is somebody that claims to be a believer, then that's one kind of conversation. If they don't claim to be a believer, then that's an entirely different sort of thing. I, uh, the second thing I would ask is, who's initiating the divorce? Is it the dad who says, well, I'm bisexual, I'd love to stay, I'd love to keep on to you, but give my body to other men? Or is it the mom going, this is totally gross, and I'm out? And then I would have a different conversation depending on which side that goes. So I'm not sure if I can answer the biblical question with that limited information, except to say this, look at me. I'm so sorry I mean, this has to wreck you. This has to be hard for you. And I hate that there are times when kids feel like they have to parent their parents. That is not the way it should be. And I'm sorry that some of you feel that way. And I just want to let you know the way we've answered so many other questions. Being in a situation like that isn't God's ideal for you. It's not God's ideal for your parents' marriage either. And so what do you do? Similar to the the guy whose dad is a porn addict. You love. You work through your grief. You acknowledge your disappointment. You let them know that you know. And it's hard for you. And then you say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I will still love you. I won't give up on you. Because again, symptoms versus roots. One last thing. Far too often the church, all the church wants to deal with are the symptoms. All we want to deal with is homosexuality or abortion. We want to politicize those issues and make them set front and center in the culture wars. That's a wrong approach, brothers and sisters. Those are symptom issues. Root issues are what Jesus wants to do with any heart that's open to him. And when Jesus captures your heart, those other issues 
will come along. He will lead you in those issues from darkness to light. Our job isn't to beat each other up. And for those who are in darkness, to beat them up with light. It is to invite. It is to embody. And it is to love and serve people that don't agree with us. We follow a Jesus who said, bless those who persecute you. And the church sucks at blessing those who persecute us. Can I get an amen? Amen. So I just want to bless those who disagree. If you're here and you're offended, I totally understand. (laughs) My hope is that I didn't add to the offense or take away the offense. Because Jesus does summon each and every one of you, gay or straight, Republican or Democrat, white or black, to abandon every other identity to be found in him. He is an equal opportunity summoner. So it doesn't matter if you're a porn addict. It doesn't matter if you've had abortions. It doesn't matter if you call yourself gay, straight, or bi. Jesus simply says you are loved, you are lost, and you are welcome in his kingdom. You don't have to get cleaned up first. All you've got to do is say yes. So would you close your eyes for a moment? I, um, I, I simply want to give anybody here the opportunity to say yes to Jesus if you've never said yes to him. Now, I've been in some places where this is really cheesy, and I don't want it to be cheesy, so I'm just going to kind of talk to you straight. If you're here and you've never said yes to this Jesus, I just want to give you the opportunity to say yes to him. And understand, that's not being saying yes to a religion. It's not saying yes to church. It's not saying yes to being crazy. It's saying yes to the God who relentlessly pursues you and demonstrates his great love by dying on the cross, absorbing all of the evil of the world in himself, rising from the dead and offering forgiveness for anyone who calls upon his name. Some of you are here and you feel so filthy, so dirty, and so far away. We don't add to those judgments. We simply say that God has provided a way for you to be at peace with him. And this way is the way of grace. It's an unmerited, absolute gift. All you have to do is receive it by faith. So it's similar to standing in a wedding ceremony and saying, I do. That is the beginning of a journey, not the end. It is a way of saying to God, God, I do. I want to receive you. I want to live with you and for you. I want you to take over my life, the life that I've run into the ground. And if you're not somebody who is a fan of Jesus just yet or church, man, there is no pressure. There's going to be no appeals for money, no emotional music, no smoke and mirrors, just a simple invitation the way he did it. But I am going to ask you, if you've never said yes to this Jesus and you want to, uh, to simply just raise your hand right now. I think eyes are kind of closed. But if that's something you've never done and you want to, I just want to give you the opportunity to do that by just raising your hand and holding it up for me, if you would. No guilt, 
no pressure. So I see you. And I just invite you, just in the quietness of your own heart, to pray to God. And you can follow my prayer if you want, or you can just use one of your own. There's nothing magic about the words, but it's just simply, dear God, I want to receive you. And I want to ask you to come into my life, to take it over, to renew me, to cleanse me, to forgive me. I receive this Jesus. And I ask that you would show me and lead me into the way of life that you bring. Bring me out of darkness into light. And allow me to lay hold of the freedom you offer. And so Jesus, for those hearts that are open, would you speak words of grace and peace. And we ask you, mighty God, that you would bring healing to this community. The healing that comes from acknowledging truth and the healing that comes from receiving grace. And for those whose hearts are angry, betrayed, hurt, disappointed, God, would you do the work that only you can do, I pray. Amen. All right, would you stand up? I want to bless you as you go. Prayer team, we'll be up here. We'll be around the room. You did good, kids. You got a good hour. Uh, so I just want to pray a blessing over you like we've been doing. Thank you for coming. Next week, sexuality. We'll talk more about some of the stuff that we were just hinting at tonight. So may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Amen and amen. Go in grace. Go in truth. God bless you. Hey, thanks for listening to the Vox Podcast. Learn more about us at voxpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Vox Podcast. And now support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash voxpodcast.